Let's go ahead and let's pray before we open God's Word together this morning and hear Him speak to us. Our Father, Christ, our Savior, Spirit that indwells us, we pray that truly You would be our vision this morning, that You would open the eyes of our hearts, that You would give us ears to hear, that You would give us minds to understand. That you might be first and foremost before us this morning, that I would not be a distraction this morning, that we would not be a distraction to one another this morning, that the rest of the events of this day or the upcoming events of this week would not distract us, that the things from this past week would not occupy us, but that we would find that over these next minutes that we are caught up with you. That we are hearing your voice and that we are seeing you in your glory. Speak to us, we pray. We pray this in the strong name of Christ the living word. Amen. Matthew chapter 28, this morning verses 16 through 20. This is the holy, inerrant, sufficient word of God. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. We're going to spend a couple of weeks in this passage as we finish up the Gospel of Matthew. We'll do so this week, and then we'll return again next week. Not something I don't think I've ever done in this congregation, where we've returned to the same passage and preached it twice, but we want to look at a little bit of a higher view this week, and then next week we'll look at a little more of the application of it and drill a little deeper but you'll notice that at the beginning of this passage, we are in Galilee, and the disciples have gathered there in Galilee. You'll remember back to last week's passage that the risen Christ, the risen King, had appeared to the women. And as He had appeared to these women disciples, He had given them instruction. And part of that instruction was they were to tell the male disciples, the whoever they were, at least the remaining eleven, that they were to journey to Galilee and there they were to meet Jesus. And so here we find them having obeyed the command that they had received from the Lord Jesus through these women and they are now gathered together in Galilee. 
Why Galilee? I don't expressly know. I think it could be that it is in preparation for what Jesus is going to tell them there, that they are to be a witness to the nations, that they are to go out. And so he is getting them out of Judea, and he is beginning them in Galilee as maybe a good starting point for, look, you are to make disciples of all of the nations. Or it could be that you will remember Jesus' ministry with the disciples began in Galilee. It was there that he called some of them to himself, and it was there that he began his public ministry. And so maybe he's taken them all the way back to the beginning to remind them that you have been my disciples, and as I begun, so now you are to finish as I begin to commission you. Regardless, Matthew tells us that they gathered on a moment and on a mountain there in Galilee. Biblically, it is often on mountaintops that we see kind of new ages begin, or we see kind of the the huge redemptive moments in uh, redemptive history are often on mountaintops. It is on a mountaintop that uh, Isaac will be brought as a sacrifice for Abraham. It is on a mountaintop that we have the giving of the Ten Commandments and the building of the temple, and we have the Sermon on the Mount, and we will have the Transfiguration, and we have the Crucifixion. And now it is on a mountaintop again that we have the Lord Jesus gathering His disciples, and He is about to commission them for this new age. I've often thought about this scene, and as they're gathered on this mountaintop, and this risen king is meeting with his disciples, and I think it it reminds me often of things that we see often throughout just regular human history, where you will have some great leader that gathers together with his people, with his underlings, with his disciples, or with his soldiers, or with his subjects, whoever it may be, and it's almost always the same kind of thing in a kind of epic moment. You have this king or this sovereign or this leader will identify himself. He will make known who he is and remind them of who he is. And then he will always give them a charge. He will give them some kind of, this is what we are going to do. Now, rally around me. Here we go. We are going to do this. Take that hill or we are going to win this battle or And then there's almost always some kind of assurance or reassurance that that leader gives them. And we have these three elements here in this commissioning that Jesus does with the disciples on this mountain. He tells them who He is. He gives them this kind of charge, this commission, this command, and then He reassures Him. So it's very normal compared to many things I see in just regular human history. And yet, there's also an abnormality of each of these elements, as we'll see, as I want to go through those three things this morning. Who Jesus says He is, what He tells them to do, and then the reassurance that He gives them. First, who is He? Well, Jesus is the King of heaven and earth. He is the King of kings. He is the King of the kingdom. He has all authority. That's what He says in verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. I'm the King of the kingdom who has all authority. What is this kingdom? 
Well, we have this kingdom throughout the Scriptures. It is called the kingdom of God, or it is called the kingdom of heaven. It is that special reign of God over His people and over the world. And the Old Testament will prophesy about this time and time again, that one day that God will rule over His people. You say, well, isn't God always ruling over His people? Well, yes, in in one very real sense, and yet what the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is looking forward to is that day when God will specifically rule over His people and there will be uninterrupted fellowship and uninterrupted submission to Him and uninterrupted reigning over them. And we see this prophesied time and again and all the blessings that flow from it. As I said, it's very normal for an authority figure to show up and claim authority. But what's abnormal here is that Jesus claims all authority. He claims supremacy over all. And Matthew has been moving us forward to this point throughout the Gospels. He has been gently leading us here to to see this so that we are prepared for it. From the very first verses of the Gospel, we're given the genealogy of Jesus. And what is it? It is the royal genealogy of Jesus. That is, that He is descended from Adam, but also that He is descended from David. That's how it's broken up, Adam and David. That is, He is a descendant of Adam... And we will see he will be the fulfillment of what Adam failed to do. And he will be a descendant of David. That is, he shall be the son of the king. And he shall be the king that was promised to come. We then see the prophecies fulfilled. And that the baby Jesus is born in the manger in Bethlehem. Where? In the city of David. The place where the king was to be born. The kingdom has come. How do we know that the kingdom has come? Because the king has come. When he is born in that manger, what happens? A rival king. Matthew gives us a picture of that rival king, Herod, that is trying to stamp out this king's life. Why? Because he knows. He's heard the prophecies about this kingdom coming and this king. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. But the king will survive. And as he survives, what happens? You have three kings that come from the east. And what do these three kings do? They come and they appear before this baby king. And they offer him what? They offer him worship. And they offer him gifts. Gifts that are appropriate for a king. John the Baptist, when he begins his ministry there in the opening pages of the Gospel of Matthew, what will he say? He says that he is preparing the way Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's preparing the way for the king. Why is the kingdom of heaven at hand? Because the king of heaven is at hand. But even more so, Matthew's been structuring his whole gospel this way. He's been trying to show you and I in the opening pages of the gospel that Jesus is the fulfillment of this kingship. That where Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. And where the, the nation of Israel was supposed to be, as it were, a kind of vice-regent on earth, where it was to represent God, and it was to be a light to the nations, and it was to be His, His earthly presence as He dwelt with them, and they reflected Him in this world. Where they failed, Christ succeeds. 
And so you have where Jesus goes down into Egypt after the genealogy of Matthew 1. In Matthew 2, he goes down into Egypt. And what happens in Matthew 3? Well, as he comes out of Egypt, Matthew 3 erupts and he is baptized in the Jordan River. And then what happens in Matthew 4? He is led out into the wilderness and tempted. And what happens in Matthew 5? He ascends onto the mount and he gives a sermon on the mount in Matthew 5 through 7. What is Matthew doing? He's recalling to you the nation of Israel. He's saying the nation of Israel went down into Egypt. And when it came out of Egypt, what did it do? It crossed through the Red Sea. And when it got to the other side of the Red Sea, just as Jesus went down into Egypt, and then He comes into the Jordan River, what did it happen when Israel came out of the Red Sea? Then they went into the wilderness wandering for 40 years, and they were tempted and they were tried. And what does Jesus do when He comes out of the water? He goes into the wilderness for 40 days, and He is tempted and He is tried. And then what do they do? They gather at the foot of Mount Sinai and they hear the words of God, the commandments that come down and say, this is my law. And now Jesus ascends the mount and he proclaims, this is the law of God as he details the Sermon on the Mount. What is Matthew doing? He has been laying it out for us. A new day has dawned. The kingdom has come because the king of Israel, the fulfillment has come. The king of heaven and earth has arrived. He goes on throughout the gospel, right? Jesus rides on a donkey into the city of Jerusalem. Why? This is the city of kings. And this is how a king rides into the royal city. When he bears the cross, he wears a crown. Why? Because he is achieving his royal victory. Even as Pilate will have those words etched in in wood above Jesus' head in that plaque where it will say, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. When He's raised from the grave, He demonstrates His victory over all. And when He ascends eventually to the right hand of the Father, what does He ascend to? He ascends to a throne. This is the King. The King of heaven and earth. And He is ushered in His kingdom. Notice what is unique about what he says. He says that he, he has all authority. He doesn't limit the authority that is his, neither in substance nor in place. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Abraham Kuyper famously said this, he said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence. What Kuyper is pointing out is that we will often have little areas of our lives or little areas of this world where we will say, Jesus, you can have this, but you can go no further here. And Kuiper is saying, no, no. All of our human existence, every realm of it, is Christ. I like that quote. Uh, I don't think it's enough, though. I think Kuiper is a little short-sighted in the quote. You know, he is rightfully kind of coming along and saying, well, Jesus... 
is trying to say to you and I in our own human lives, you and I will put different areas off limits. And so we will say, you know what, Christ can be Lord of this part of my life. It can be Lord of ah, my, my Sunday mornings. He'll be Lord of maybe my ethics at work. He may be Lord of my finances and, and I will submit to Him there. I recognize His authority there, but not in my marriage or not in my friendships, or not in my recreations. And Kuiper's rightfully pressing in on that and saying, no, every part of your life, Jesus says that is mine. But you see, it is much bigger than that. It is not just that He looks at each part of your and my lives, each part of human existence and says that is mine. He claims all authority in heaven and on earth. Everything that is and everything that could be and everything that is not, He is Lord of. It's all His. All of it. I think we often think, I will yield my finances to Christ, I'll yield my friendships to Christ, I'll yield my... And Jesus would change that and He would say, oh, you're starting in the wrong place. It should be your. It's yours, Lord Jesus. It's a different type of living when you and I begin to live like that. We're we see everything that we are and everything that we have and every portion of our lives is not, is not mine. It's all held in stewardship. All that I am, all that I could be, it is but a stewardship that has been given to me. All that I possess, it is but stewardship. It is all His. That's a different kind of living. And the Apostle Paul will say, I'm not my own. He understood this. That Heidelberg Catechism that we so love here at URC, writers of that understood that. First question, I am not my own, but I belong both body and soul to my Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that? Why is that that there's no portion of my life that is off limits. I can't say you can't go this much further in this portion of my life. Why is it that I must say that I am not my own? Because everything is His. Everything. It is all yours, Jesus. He has all authority. Second, Notice what he tells them to do in response to this authority. He gives them orders. You almost always have this. A leader shows up. He's got his troops there. or He has his fellowship there. or He has his disciples there. And what does he do? He reminds them of who he is. And then he gives them some kind of charge. You are to do this. And we see it here with Jesus. He commissions his subjects. He commissions these disciples. And by doing that, he gives us a picture of what a disciple of his is to look like. But before we see it, I want you to see what a disciple does not look like. A disciple does not look like perfection. 
Not the side of glory, at least. Verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Some doubted. <laughs> They're in the presence of the risen, glorified king. They're looking at him. They're standing before him, and some of them doubted. Who are the some? I don't know. It depends on how you take verse 10. When the women go and they're told to tell the disciples to gather there in Galilee, was Jesus speaking of just the 11 disciples, the remaining 11? Was he speaking of the greater cadre of disciples that followed Jesus, uh, the, the greater group? Is that part Maybe it's the 500 that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to at one time. I don't know. But what we do know is that regardless, those who gathered, each who was there, had to have some measure of faith or they would not have gone to Galilee to gather together before this risen Christ. They had some measure of faith. There was great danger in doing this. And yet... It's clear that some of the disciples were not quite as assured in their faith as others were. It wasn't, I don't think, that they doubted and that they didn't recognize Jesus. I don't think that's the case. When we see the Lord Jesus appear in His resurrected body to people in the, in the New Testament, uh, in His post-resurrection appearances, they, they notice Him. They, they, they know who He is. The exception is something like those disciples on the Emmaus Road where we're told that those two disciples didn't recognize who Jesus was, but we're told that God made them not recognize who Jesus was in that passage. seems pretty clear that when Jesus appears in His resurrected body before people, they know who He, did, who he is. So what is it that they're doubting here? It seems to be that some of the disciples hesitated to trust whether Jesus was indeed worthy of all worship and whether He was worthy of all submission. They have faith, but it's, it's tepid. It's small. And that makes sense. I think of the fact that Jesus says to them all in response, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. They have their doubts. There is hesitation. And what's his answer? It's not seeing the body of Jesus. It's rather hearing the words of Jesus. That's his answer for them. All authority has been given to me. He reassures them with his word. If you feel like you have much to learn as a disciple of Christ, then welcome to the club of what we call discipleship in Christ. That's what it is. And you and I come to Christ, we enter into the school of Christ, and we're all students. And at least in this life, there is no perfection that we arrive at. There's no graduation. There is just growth. And often just by small gradations. And it's lifelong. But how do you grow in it? Notice what Jesus gives them. 
We often are after some kind of moment. We want some experience. We want some kind of vision. But that is not what Jesus gives them. He simply speaks to them. It's His Word. It's His Word that encourages them to go out. And it's His Word that encourages them to submit to Him as they go out. It's His Word. Too often we're like the... The hungry man who comes and he says, I am famished, I am so hungry, my stomach is growling and I am so thirsty and my lips are parched and I just want something to drink and you give him food and you give him water and then the next day he comes back and he says, I am still absolutely famished and I am starving and look at how cracked my lips are and you say, but did you eat what I gave you and did you drink what I gave you? And he says, no. You say, how foolish. And yet spiritually, we so often resemble Him. We're not what we want to be in submission to this King. Our faith is so weak. We feel so fragile. We, we feel like we are not where we are supposed to be in Christ. We know that we should have progressed farther than we are. We feel a coldness. We feel a darkness. We feel a languishing. Who hasn't? Woke up this morning feeling like, oh, my faith is so small today. Who hasn't woken up and felt like that? And he says, I've given you my word. I feel too tired to read the word, too spiritually dry to come to worship. It feels like hypocrisy. It's not hypocrisy that keeps you away. It's foolishness. There's no hypocrisy in these disciples that they are going to meet Jesus though they do not have some kind of mature faith, some of these. It is not hypocrisy that they are going to feed upon this Word that He has given to them and they will go out with that Word. It's foolishness that keeps us away. If the hungry man said, I have no strength to eat my bread, we would say, but you have to eat so you can have strength. You can have the strength to pick up the bread and break it and put it in your mouth. You have the strength to open the Word and to read it. You have the strength to pray over it. You have the strength to come to worship week in and week out. You have it. This is how He feeds our faith. The Word of Jesus bolsters the faith of His disciples and He sends them into the world with this bolstered, bolstered faith by strengthening them with His Word. We're always students. We're always learning. We always need more. But notice this, that when you enter the school of Christ, you enter not only as a student, you enter as a teacher. If you know Christ, you know enough to share Christ. If you know Christ, you know enough to share Christ. He commissions the disciples to go out and make disciples. 
I want to look at this in more detail next week. I want to look at some of the application that we can derive from this. But what I want you to see today is this, that when Jesus commissions the disciples to go out and make disciples, it is all the disciples that are there. Now some of these disciples are clearly are given a greater measure of faith at the beginning of this pilgrimage. And as they go out, some of them have a greater measure of faith. Not all of them were doubting. Some of them had less faith. But an ounce of saving faith is saving faith. And if you know Jesus, you know enough to share Jesus. He says to all of them, go therefore and make disciples, not to those who had perfect faith, because there are none, not to those who simply had the greatest faith, not to those who had the most mature faith, all are to go out and make disciples. I had an economics teacher in high school that he had on the front wall, in the center of the wall, that we all had to stare at every single class day, sat there in the middle, big poster, and it said, in life there are no free lunches, and in this classroom there are no free lunches. That was his way of saying there are no excuses. That's what Jesus would say to you and I. No excuses. If you know me, you know enough to share me. All disciples are to be Disciple-making disciples. Maybe the greatest surprise to me of the kingdom of Christ is this. That He chooses to work through you and I. It's so shocking to me. It's so shocking because I know my weakness, my frailty, my sin, my fickleness. I feel it every week when I get up here. And yet, He chooses to use you and I to work His kingdom purposes out in this world. It seems so silly that he would do so. It is interesting to me that from what I can tell, and maybe someone would correct me, but I look at all the resurrection appearances of Jesus in the New Testament, and every single one of them, he appears to those who are already his disciples. You say, well, what about Paul on the Damascus Road? Well, he doesn't appear to him. He speaks to him. Though Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared also to me, who was untimely born. But I think he's speaking there about hearing Jesus speak to him. He doesn't appear in his resurrected, glorified body to anyone that's an unbeliever, and that's how they're converted. He always appears to his disciples. So how are people brought out of darkness into light? How are the lost brought to salvation? How is it that those that haven't seen Christ believe in Christ through his disciples? And yet it seems so silly. He's the king of all and could use anything or he could use nothing. 
and he uses us. I've wondered, why is that? Surely one of the reasons has to be from this text that, look, he is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, and so he chooses to use weak, frail human vessels, and that just magnifies his authority. It also seems to me that at least in part, what he could do by himself, by his own power and by his own authority, he chooses to do through you and I so that we might have not only the responsibility but the privilege. That I might actually have a life that is worth living. That I can actually spend my hours and my days investing in something that actually matters for all of eternity. That I can look back on my life and think, it wasn't just wasted time, but rather I was sowing things in heaven that last for all time, that He was using me to bring people to everlasting saving life with Him, and that He was using me to build up those more to His conformity and to more to His likeness so that they might look more like Him and give Him more glory for all of eternity. So that I might actually have something worth living for. This eternal kingdom and labor for this eternal king. There's that famous moment in church history where William Carey, who we often call the father of modern missions, where he will go before some different church leaders and he will speak about his need, to what he thought was a calling upon his life to go to India, to go to the ends of the earth and share the gospel. And there will be that old pastor that is in the midst, and he will say to William Carey in response to this, he will say, young man, sit down. You're an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, He'll do it without consulting you or me. That is, God doesn't need you, William Carey. You see, he's right. That old seasoned pastor was right. He had half of it right. He knew the first part of this passage that the Lord Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. He needs no one. What he didn't understand was the second half. Though he needs no one, he chooses to use no ones to save people. He chooses to work through us. That's how He has chosen to work. He's called His disciples to be disciple makers. I wonder what would it be like? What would it be like if we just set the bar really low as a church? I don't know, 650 people gather here on a Sunday morning. Let's just set the bar low. Let's just set it low and say, okay. I say to myself, say to you, what, what if we all just aimed to share the gospel with one person a month? 
Just one person. What if we set the bar low and we said, you know what? The Great Commission is about seeing people save from darkness to light, and it's about seeing people grow in discipleship in Christ. We're to teach them everything that Christ has commanded. So you know what? We're going to share the gospel with one person a month, and I'm going to disciple two people a month. If you know Christ, you know enough to share Christ. If you have an ounce of saving faith, it's saving faith. And if you have that saving faith, you know Christ, so you have enough to share Christ. Just one person a month to share the faith with, what would that be like? 650 people set loose on this, in this area sharing the gospel. What would it be like if 650 of us were seeking to disciple two people? Because you see, there is always someone that is further behind you in the school of Christ. Always. There's always someone that is just one step behind. Always. If you know Christ, you know enough to share Christ. What does it look like? Well, it's simple. You just share the Word. The king sends out his subjects with one thing. His word. How did Jesus send out these disciples? He didn't do so with academic degrees. He didn't do so with wealth. He didn't do so with, at the head of armies. He didn't do so with political power. He sent them out simply with His word. That's it. And from that little band of disciples, the faith will spread across the Fertile Crescent across North Africa, surround the Mediterranean Sea. It will go across the plains of Europe. It will cross the English Channel into the British Isles. It will cross the Atlantic to the New World and hit North and South America. It will travel across the Pacific and it will hit all of those Pacific Islands. It will go into India and into China and into Asia and into the heart of Africa so that there will be those from every tongue, tribe, and nation gathered before His throne on that last day. And how did they go out? They went out with the Word. And why did they go out? Because their King sent them out with the Word. Talk a little more about that next week. You can invest in this eternal kingdom. You can invest in those around you. And you do so by His Word. But finally... I want you to see that He sends them out with a promise. Our final point, the reassurance He gives them. The reassurance He gives them. I think it's interesting think about history and think about where I read famous you know, speeches made by generals or by politicians or uh, different leaders in history and you know, they will always identify themselves. They will always give the charge, this is what you need to do. And then the reassurance is always something like, uh, we're going to do this. We're going to take that hill. Or we're going to win this battle. Or you know what? We are superior. We'll win this war. Or you know what? There will be other troops that when they see us go forward, they will gather along with us. There's always that kind of reassurance, but that's not what Jesus does. That's not how He reassures them. Rather, He reassures them by saying, Lo, I am with you always, 
even to the end of the age. This whole passage focuses upon the person of Jesus. When they gather in Galilee and they see Him, what do they do in verse 17? They bow down and they worship Him. And what's Jesus' response to them bowing and worshiping Him? He says in verse 18, He focuses on Himself. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. When he sends them out, how does he send them out? He sends them out to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, that's himself, and the Holy Spirit. And what does he tell them to do? Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then he ends it with, lo, I am with you. I am with you until the end of the age. You hear somebody talk like that, you'd think they're a megalomaniac. Or at least you would think they're a narcissist. But not Jesus. Why? Because it's warranted. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And the king is saying, when I send you out, I, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, when I send you out, I'm with you. That'll give you some courage. He is truly Emmanuel, God with us. Not only that He became flesh, but that He continues to abide with us even now. A phrase is very interesting that's here. It literally reads the, reads the whole of every day. That is, Christ is with us in the dawn. He is with us when at noonday. He is with us in the twilight. He is with us in the evening. Even when we are asleep in our beds, He is with us. He may send us out among lions, but He's with us. Wherever Christ sends us, He is with us. Wherever we journey, He leads us. We may lose a lot of things in this life, but we never lose His presence. You can lose all the riches in the world, and you can still be the most rich person in the entire world. Why? Because you have Christ. You can be abandoned by all of your friends, and you are still not alone. Why? Because you have Christ. You can lose your spouse. And you know what? In one sense you're a widow or a widower, but in another you're not because you still have your bridegroom, the Christ. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. How can we sing such a thing? Because we have Christ. He's always, always with His people. As J.C. Ryle said, none have such a king such a priest, such a constant companion, and such an unfailing friend as the true servants of Christ. Ah, there's no better king than this. You couldn't dream of a better king. He has all authority in heaven and on earth, and He gives you the great privilege and the great responsibility to serve Him so that you can do things that matter for eternity, so that you actually have a life that is worth living. You say, ah, oh, I don't understand this. Why am I still here? I'm tired of all of these pains, all of these trials, all of these troubles, all of these struggles, all of this despair, all of this discouragement. And He says, because it matters. Because you're here with a purpose. And that's to do eternal things. And by the way, when I send you out to do it, I'm with you. I who have all authority. 
That's a king we're serving with all your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do exalt you this morning. Give you praise who has all authority in heaven and on earth. We thank you for your exceeding kindness, giving us not only the great responsibility, but the great privilege of laboring for your kingdom. Take our lives and let them be consecrated, O Lord, to thee. May we let goods and kindred go in this mortal life also. May we cling to you. Would you be our vision? May you be glorified by us. We pray this in your strong name, our King, our Savior, and our abiding friend. Amen.